Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, the podcast that showcases amazing origin stories of leaders in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. I'm your host for today's episode, Tom Varghese. The word grit is defined by Dr. Angela Duckworth as a combination of passion, which is a deep, enduring knowledge of what you want, and perseverance, which is hard work and resilience. It's about moving in a direction with consistency and endurance. Numerous research studies have proven that talent and intelligence alone don't predict success. Effort, which is sustained by grit, is needed to hone your natural talents into tangible skills through practice and improvement. When I think of the word grit in the world of cardiothoracic surgery, which name comes easily to mind? For me, it is Dr. Daniela Molina, thoracic surgeon and director of esophageal surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. In today's Same Surgeon, Different Light podcast, we connect with easily one of the most interesting leaders in the world. We deep dive into the fascinating origin story of this remarkable individual, from a small village in Italy to one of the oldest medical schools in the world, to being a busy esophageal surgeon in Italy, to falling in love and starting a family, to restarting her training all over again in the United States, and finally a leading light as one of the most versatile and brilliant esophageal surgeons in the world. You will hear some constant themes in her life journey, the ability to seek best practices, continuous process improvement, and a hunger to make the world a better place. All of these are reflected in the four psychological assets behind grit. Interests are loving what you do, practice, which is focusing on improvement no matter what, purpose, and hope. Join us as we interview Dr. Daniela Molina for today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. Daniela, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. You're very, very kind. Very generous words, Tom. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, there was that uh, Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world and everything that was really popular many years ago. I actually think they missed the target because I think that, you know, uh, the most interesting, one of the most interesting human beings that I've ever met in my life is yourself. And so what we'll do oh. is we're going to go deep dive into the mystique behind <laughs> The, uh, the internationally famous Dr. Danielle Molina. Uh, uh, Dr. Molina, tell us about your childhood. Uh, where was it? Uh, how, how, how were things back, back as a kid? Well, I, uh, uh, had a, I had a very interesting childhood in the sense that I uh, grew up in a very small town in Italy. Uh, my uh, father... Uh, what, what, was the what was the name of the town? Uh, so I uh, was very briefly in Padova, which is actually a pretty large city but uh, pretty soon moved to Kona, <laughs> which is, you cannot find it on the map. There is a church, <laughs> a cemetery, a grocery store, and that is it. That's <laughs> it. <was> <laughs> and that's where my grandparents uh, lived. And that's why, so I was born in Padova and my father was a sacristan, believe it or not, that was a job back in the days. So he took care of a church and that's why we lived there. The church had given my mom and my dad an apartment uh, for us to live so that my dad could take care of the church. My mother uh, was a seamstress. Uh, she made clothes at home. And uh, unfortunately, when I was one and my sister was two, uh, my dad died in an accident. Uh, he, uh, was had, uh, he was in a bicycle going to a meeting because he was like the head of the sacristans in Padova. I was very proud of that. And a drunk driver came out of a stop sign. And so he was actually in a, in a coma and I, uh, he, he had some um, cerebral hemorrhage and they tried, I think, to operate him. And then he died uh, 10 days later. So, uh, so yeah. how, how, how old are you, Danielle? I was time? one and my sister was one. two and wow. my mother was 25. I was like, really, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a little traumatic start. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, my mother then uh, moved to live with my grandparents in Kona. So this very, very tiny town. And my grandfather uh, was a carpenter. He had a shop under the, the house where they lived. So they lived upstairs and downstairs there was a nice shop. And he unfortunately had four daughters. And so nobody really <laughs> to, to pick up the job that he had, right, <laughs> four daughters. They were all unmarried, and the only married one was my mother, who came back home. Yeah, who came back home. <laughs> so, yes, we, they lived in a two-bedroom apartment, right? The, the house had a two-bedroom apartment upstairs, a very tiny bathroom that you hit your head when you took a shower. <laughs> and and uh, so we're all there. Now, my mom came back with two kids, um, so it was a little challenging. In the beginning, uh, my grandmother worked in the fields. She uh, she uh, worked very hard uh, to contribute to the family, and uh, and my grandfather worked at home. And he was really like the typical grandfather in an Italian family. So he was, you know, the head of the family. And my mother would do anything that my grandfather would say. So with the money that we got from the insurance from the accident. Uh, my grandfather said that we, my mother should move to a bigger town because where we lived, it was really in the middle of nowhere. And he said, you need to give this girl a little bit of a better shot and possibility. And so my family from my father's side um, 
lived in another small, small town. And in between these two small towns, there was a little uh, bigger town, which was called Piove di Sacro. And uh, uh, so we bought an apartment there. And uh, we, I, still I still remember very clearly the day that we moved. Uh, we moved there because my sister, who was one year older than me, was starting elementary school. And so we, uh, you know, with uh, my mother thought it was a good idea to move there so that we start all grade schools in this new place, in this new town. And, uh, um, you know, we left my grandfather's house, you know, the three of us, I was four and a half, my sister was five and a half in a 600 Fiat. And everybody was crying desperately. And I was thinking, oh my God, what are we doing? Where are we going? <laughs> my grandfather was in the middle of the street, you know, like waving and crying. And I was really, really frightened, <laughs> you know, of what would happen. Uh, so there, you know, we moved to this uh, little bigger town and I grew up there and stayed there. My mother still lived in the same apartment. And oh, yeah, uh, even today, she's, she's even, still there. <laughs> even today. Even today, she lives in the same apartment now. So we did all schools there, in elementary school, middle school, and uh, high school, all in the same small town. All my best friends are still there. You know, I was, uh, of course, growing up uh, Catholic in, in Italy. I was very involved with the kids uh, in, uh, in the church. And uh, I thought um, uh, in Sunday school when I was younger, and I, I took care of um the kids and took them to camps in the summer and so we had a very simple simple so, living it, so life. It, I've always been fascinated by um it, it it's almost a worldwide common theme that everybody appreciates that education is really the is the gateway towards more opportunities in life um uh, because I can imagine how heartbreaking it must have been for your grandparents. I mean, the easy thing to do would have been to say, no, just stay with us in this small town. But they were like, no, you need to go so that, uh, you know, you and your sister would have the opportunities to, to advance in this world. Uh, correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, I still to this day, you know, I, it, it's incredible that my grandfather had that uh, um, ability to to say and that they're moving to a bigger city uh, there were better schools better opportunities you know nobody really thought that I would have gone this far to be honest with you my grandfather thought that I would have been a great teacher he kept on saying that to me you know like oh, you'll be a great teacher and uh, you know but, I can but tell you a little bit more are. about but in yes. a way you are. I mean, you are training <laughs> yeah. our next generation of yeah. uh, cardiothoracic surgeons. Uh, and it's, it's, and it's a, the, one of the most rewarding part of my job, right? But when I decided in high school, actually in middle school, <clears throat> when I decided that I wanted to go to this school, you know, in Italy is a little, the education system is a little different. And um, most people go to a professional school where you learn a job and then you yeah. go to work. But there are schools that are called liceo uh, where you just go for educational purposes. And that means that you have to go to a university if you wanna have like a diploma that you can have a job. And so when I announced to my family that I wanna go to this type of school, the liceo, everybody was really, really nervous. Yeah. And my, my grandfather was really uh, involved in my life, you know, throughout all my life. He was saying, you know, you can still go to university if you go to teaching school, just, just, just go and get a degree and be a teacher. And then if you want to go to university, it's okay. No, and you were like, no. So that, that, 
So that is, that is at such a young age. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, trying to picture ourselves in your shoes in middle school, announcing to your family that you're going to go on a pathway that nobody else in the family has ever done before. I, I mean, talk, talk us about where that fearlessness comes in. Yeah. I mean, because most people are fearful of doing anything major in their lives. Yeah, I was a rebel. I always, I was always a rebel of the family. <laughs> I always did. My mom still to this day, she said, "Don't tell her what to do. She's gonna do the opposite." She's gonna do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so even now Great. today, you know. So um, you know, I was very fortunate that I was always very good in school. I loved to study. I loved to learn, and it was very easy for me. I could read something, and I would just know and read and and learn about it. And, and I was so much uh, curious, you know, I was curious to learn more and, and understand things. And I was actually a teacher that I had in middle school. It was a French teacher uh, that said to me, you know, like, you should really consider going to the school. I never had considered that before because, you know, I didn't grow up with that. And so it's, you know, the, the family where you grow up and the people that you're exposed to are so important to determine you're going to be. So I never really considered going to Aliche. Also, I looked up these people and thinking, oh, they're also snob and you know, rich kids. <laughs> I don't want to be with them. <laughs> and so she brought it up, and I thought about it, and uh, and then I talked with my gym teacher, believe it or not. So those they were the two strongest advocate uh, of me. They knew, of course, a small town. Everybody knew my mom. Uh, she by then was a working as a janitor in the next nearby school uh, where I went to middle school. And so we were like all kind of in the same area. So everybody knew my mom and, uh, uh, you know, they kind of talked to her and I guess I decided to go to the jail and that really changed my life. Really yeah. Did. And so now you're going into a brand new environment, uh, university school, uh, as you said, you already knew that you were at, you know, a little bit of an outlier, uh, you know, not like all your classmates. Tell us about that process. Like, was it just, you know, getting knowledge by like from a, a, a hose of water or like how, how was that immersion into that next new environment? I, to be honest with you, it was not easy. I, I, I really felt different from the very first day. Uh, people were, you know, wearing you know, cool clothes and um, things that, you know, were popular and I had like penned out clothes and uh, it, it just, I felt really embarrassed about my past in a way, you know, like I was young. So I don't really understand that actually. I was so fortunate for everything that happened, but I, I it was really hard to fit in. Uh, thank God there were some, you know, other kids that were like me and I got really involved actually with a, a youth group uh, from my church. Um, at that time, and we're still like really, really good friends now. And they are also in the same school. And so I had a community. And I think the role of community is a theme in my life, right? And so I, I feel like I was a little bit different every time, I, you know, every place that I was, I was always a little bit different, but I had a community that supported me. And so in high school, I think that community was my youth group. Uh, initially, I was super, I was, believe it or not, I was a super shy kid. 
That is, yeah, shocking. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that is shocking to me, but okay. <laughs> I, know. I know. I was very shy. I was uh, very afraid of speaking up because I felt like people might notice that I wasn't like the other or that I was different. And so going to this youth, uh, uh, you know, we would meet once a week in the parish and uh, you had an opportunity to talk about different topics, you know, back in the days when you're a teen, you know, talk is about talking about friendship and love and all these topics. And I was like so terrified of speaking up, but, you know, like practicing and, and uh, knowing that I was in a safe environment. And so I could really say what I thought and I felt so accepted and encouraged. And so that really changed me as a person. And I think that was not just the education, but also finding that community that made me who I am today. I do want to ask you a couple of questions about the finding yeah. the community. Um, was that just like, was it organic? Like you found one friend and then the other friend came aboard or did you have any intentional strategies to try to build that community in this new setting? Oh no, I fell in love with a guy. <laughs> 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 that was in my class <laughs> and he was going to this group. And so he said, he should so, really so come. So he introduced like, you to the rest of the group. Totally, and was... yeah. <laughs> That's how it happened. One of the best things I love about this podcast series, we never know where the conversation is going to go. This is great. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Love did it. <laughs> love did that. Yep. But fortunately, even though you broke up with the guy, I mean, everything kind of worked out and everything that the community was yep. still there. <laughs> yep. That's that's the best present I, I, I got from that experience. <laughs> so throughout this process, where did the idea about pursuing a field in medicine first come about? So I, um, in, when I was a high school student, I worked at a, uh, a veterinary shop every afternoon. I really love uh, animals and I thought I would be a veterinary. And so I really, what I love most about veterinary is I could do it all. You yeah. know, I could uh, I could do lab lab tasks, draws, and I could do dressing on wounds, and I could do surgeries. I could do X-rays. We did our own. We developed our own X-rays. I did look in a microscope to look, you know, stool samples for parasites. I loved everything about it, like all things about it. And so I really was serious at thinking, seriously thinking about going into becoming veterinary. And then there were a couple of factors actually that made me change my mind. The first factor was that uh, to, uh, there was no veterinary school in Padova, which was the closest town to where I lived. And I knew that it would have been a big burden um, to uh, move to a different town and to, so, to so, maintain. Oh, beyond Padova. So um, just to orient the listeners. So yeah. the town that you were at, uh, how far away was that from Padua? That was it was about 17 kilometers. So I could take okay. a bus every day. I could take a bus to go to the university and still live at home. Okay. Would have been, but, and but that was a lot other, cheaper. But any other city you would have had to consider, you would have had to move away from home yes. in order to do that. Yeah. So Bologna was the closest veterinary school. So it could have been possible for me to take a bus to Padova and then a train to Bologna every day. But it would it was very far and, and, and it would have been a lot of expenses uh, for traveling there. And also, you know, if I would have wanted to live there, uh, it would have been really difficult. That was the first consideration. 
The second consideration was, believe it or not, people would come and ask the veterinary to kill the animals. I didn't even think that was a thing. But, you know, in Italy, then there were a lot of um, uh, cats, especially, but even dogs and cats, they were like, uh, how do you say? Um, uh, abandoned and stray. Abandoned, yeah, stray, right? Yeah. And so they were like, you know, going into things and uh, peeing around the flowers and whatever for this most stupid reason. People would come with that animal. And so veterinary Stefano was his name. He would say, Daniela, just go for a walk. Because he knew how it made you feel, yeah. yeah. I knew exactly what that meant, you know, like, because I was going there and say, you can't do that. You have to say no. <laughs> Don't do it. I was a fighter even then, right? <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'm just having say, this, I'm just having this image in my mind of the, yeah. this uh, young student going to him and say you can't do this you're really not okay <laughs> so he would say okay Daniela just go for a walk come back in an hour <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought you know people don't come you know with people they wanted to be killed or something and I really love not just the animal. I love the I love the medicine part a lot. I love the care. You know, I love to, to do things with my hands and and stuff. And so I thought, well, you know, medicine is imperative. I can take the bus and go to school there, and I, uh, you know, I can provide similar care to what veterinary care is. And so at that time, medicine was closed number, so you had to pass an exam to get in. And so I figured that summer, it was a difficult summer because in Italy, you know, you finish high school and then you have to decide what to do in university. So I was in between uh, to do engineering or medical school. And so I was kind of back and forth. Uh, that summer, I went actually in uh, um, Assisi. I don't know if you're familiar with Assisi. There is a big uh, church with St. Uh, Francis. St. Francis uh, of Assisi, uh, yes, of course. And, and I did a work camp. So yeah. I lived in a, um, uh, as a, 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 how do you say, a, a person that live alone with nobody around. So we went in these little small houses in the middle of the countryside. And we would just get up in the morning, have, you know, uh, breakfast all together and then go and work. Uh, like well, in, So work on the fields. Help, work, help how yeah, people work. And every day that you are assigned a different job. One day I would make tomato sauce. And another day I would iron clothes. And another so, day I would so just this, dig. A, this, this, a experience dig. <laughs> was, this experience was part of your formal education then. Is that correct? Or no, I did it with the, I did it with the church, through the church. You did it through, was, the church. You know, okay. through the church as an experience with uh, with the, my the community of, of church uh, friends. And we lived like really much of a Spartan life and we cooked and 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 cared for ourselves. And uh, it was a very introspective, it made me really think a lot. And I think it helped me to decide to try to go for medical school. I wasn't sure I would ever got it in, but I tried to do the exam at that point. Um, I also and, have to and, say- and in, I, in, in Italy, like a lot of different countries, to get into medical school, everybody has to write like an entrance examination, correct? Like the Yeah, it is a- yeah, it is a, it's a very difficult exam. Uh, it's not just multiple choice. You also have to write some essays, essays and things. Yeah. So it's a- it's a difficult exams and everybody participate. And so they were like, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how many, but thousands of people participating to the exam. So it was not sure that you would have gotten in. Yeah. 
Uh, but I got in, and so then I went to medical school. <laughs> and then you went to medical school at the University of Padua. Padua. Yeah. University so, of Padua. So um, I think that many of the uh, our listeners may not be very familiar with, uh, you know, foreign medical schools, especially. Uh, the University of Padua, now correct me if I'm wrong, because this is just based on my reading, especially the medical school has, is one of the most prestigious in all of Italy. And it's been around for 800 years. It's not something like a medical school that just popped up the other day and everything. Because now you've gone, not only are you doing the amazing life journey by yourself going through university, you now you've gotten into one of the most prestigious medical schools in the entire country. Yeah. Talk to us about that process of going yeah, into I, that environment. I have to say that the other theme in my career is a little bit of serendipity and maybe good luck if you want to say it that way. I had no idea that Padova, University of Padova. Was this was giant school. prestigious medical school, yeah. Like, no clue, you know, it was the closest uh, and I could take a bus from home. You could take a bus from home. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all it was. That's great. And so, but I didn't know, like it actually is the oldest medical school in Europe and you know, people like Vizali is taught there and Galilei and people that I, I had no, you know, no idea. So I, I came to learn that after the fact after after you started <laughs> that's, <good. laughs> that's great yeah yeah and so that was a great experience it was a little bit i felt always a, a little bit different because of the fact that i lived at home you know i always uh, miss out all the fun part about university you know i couldn't go out and go dancing with my friends and <laughs> other things that happen at night but because of that maybe you know i was a very good student you were very great good. great I to come back <laughs> that's funny yeah <laughs> so the thought of like staying in it well i mean i guess with the finances and the thought of staying in a dorm or anything that just was out of the question altogether correct <laughs> yeah no i really couldn't afford at that time and um and it 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 was i i did work you know to pay for books and and you know as you know school in italy is very cheap yeah and so i always say you know thank god i grew up in italy because i don't know if i would be here if i grew up somewhere else <laughs> But, you know, school is it's a small amount of money they have to pay to go to school. And then it's mostly just buying your books. And so I worked, you know, all the time. Yeah, so I worked as a babysitter. Um, and uh, I also taught dance. I, I did a lot of uh, uh, classical dancing when I was younger. Wow, that's interesting. And modern, just and dancing. Modern and so wow. I taught the kids um, on my uh, time off to pay for the books and stuff. But I couldn't really afford to live in the dorms and moved to Padova definitely. Um, and so I, I stayed home with the just to stay home. Also my friends were home in the small town. I was still then very involved with the uh, teaching kids. I then became uh, a, um, I don't know, you say that in English, but I, uh, I was uh, having my own youth group that I was running as a counselor, I guess you would yeah, say as right a youth here. counselor, yeah. Yeah, and so well, I, it, 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 I mean, pardon my ignorance. Uh, you know, you're a top student in medical school. You're working part time. You're also volunteering as a youth counselor. Uh, how in the like? You, do you not sleep? Like, how in the world do you <laughs> do all this? I'm just trying to figure out how many hours is going to take. I mean, how did you manage all of this? Uh, and I was, I don't know, I was very lucky. I could just hear things once and I remember it. That was then. Now I, I lost all that ability. <laughs> so so when, you're, when you're hard on your own kids, like that, they can't say, hey, mom, 
remember no, back totally. then. You no, can't yeah, totally. no I, I forgot all about that. But I forgot all about that. Yeah. Back then, it was good. I was listening. I was going to lessons um, in medical school for the most part. I can talk a little bit about some deviated part of my medical school time, but can go on that later. <laughs> uh, so I go to lessons and I listen and I remember. So I didn't wow. really, I didn't think I studied that that hard when I was at home. Um, was very efficient, I guess, at uh, home. But so when I was a second year medical school, if I wanted to hear the fun part of my life. Yes. When I was second year medical student, I participated. I was uh, very much actively dancing still then at that point. And so I went to a... Um, uh, a tryout and I got selected to uh, participate into a company, a dance company. Uh, a, but this a dance, dance company? Co yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering where this story is going to go. So, go yeah. So the problem was that the, desk, the dance company had to move in the mountains. They have a, they had a, a nice uh, big theater in, in uh, one of the largest hotel in the mountains uh, for the winter season. And uh, so I had to move up there and it was not easy to go back and forth to the university. And we had mandatory presence in a university. So you have to sign that you'll come in to school. Thankfully, the sign-in was a sheet that would go around your desks, right? And you sign your name. So then my friend signed my name <laughs> for me <laughs> while I was dancing. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. In, yeah, this is a great yeah. story. This is great. So that was great. That was like for all season from, I think it was from November to March. I lived in a beautiful area in the Dolomites. Wow. It was amazing. And I danced and I studied and I would come back down to Padova uh, with the train just to take my exams. I remember studying exams anatomy. And and, yes. And, and then just go back. <laughs> This is this is great. <laughs> I know, I know. I have a lot of untold uh, secrets. I, I, that's why I started this podcast, just <laughs> saying international woman of mystery. It's like I, I knew a that lot of there were going to be secrets. stories, <laughs> right? And but I can tell you that that actually turned out to be something important in my life because I met some people while I was working as a dancer in the mountains. Uh, that actually invited me to then do some auditions for a TV show. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, you didn't hear about that before, huh? <laughs> I did not hear about this before. Yeah. Okay, keep going with so, this. This is good. All right. So it was, uh, um, I actually went with a friend of mine. I accompanied my friend to Milan where the audition was happening. And I did not, you know, I did not think about auditioning for this because I was back in part of I was back in medical school and yeah. so I was okay with that and uh, so after he's uh, they finished the audition with my friend you know the people that were doing the audition came on as I saw about you didn't you want to audition and I'm like I don't even know what the audition is for but sure why not <laughs> and so it was actually a game that was going on on national tv um Il Giro de Loca do you play this game in the United States it's like you have a little duck that you you, you throw your dice and then they, you know, five points, you go on in a route and, and with the little duck. No, you don't have that. No, thing. we don't no, have, we that have it. It's a table game, but they made it a TV show. So then I went in, I did this audition. They asked me to do some like stuff, you know, very simple stuff. And guess what? They did not call my friend, but they called me to go to this. 
So you're not worried at any point. I mean, you were supposed to be technically in school. You're dancing and now you're not worried that no, if you go no on TV that people are going to find out that. <laughs> well, well, well. So did you do I, it? I went to this TV game, TV show, which uh, basically I think my mother is still more proud of that. Uh, that I was in national TV, <laughs> that of me becoming a doctor. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to make an editorial note right now in the future for anybody listening, when you, whoever gets to introduce Dr. Molina when she becomes president of the FPS or ATS, please dig up this video clip because we have to show this to people. Oh my so they, God. Your mom was yeah. unbelievably proud that you're on national TV. <laughs> Yeah, not only, not only I was a national TV, I went to the finals of this game. Oh, and yeah, I, made, this great. I made so much money. Honestly, I made a ton of money. And then I didn't have to work anymore. Then you, you didn't have to work after that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I did yeah. not see that coming. That part of the story I did not see coming. That is great. Yeah. That is... So that's it. See that all things happen for a reason. So oh. then I had enough money that I could actually eventually move to Padova. I moved when I started my residency there. Uh, it would have been really hard to go back and forth, but then I had enough money and I could uh, actually, uh, you know, yeah. help my mom a little bit with the money that we so made. I, now you had a tiny bit of exposure. I mean, when you were working in the veterinary uh, lab, uh, but the decision to pursue surgery, uh, because in Italy also it's, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's general surgery followed by uh, cardiothoracic surgery, uh, correct? Uh, is, is, is the pathway yes. there? Yeah, so in, actually you finish, you, it's a six years of medical school and then you go into any residency. And I actually went to general surgery when I was there. Yeah. I had no idea about thoracic surgery or cardiac surgery at all. I went into general surgery. And I have to say that I actually went to medical school with the idea of being a surgeon. I've, I've never considered anything a else. Any special at all, okay. I like to do things with my hands. Uh, I think I worked a lot in my grandfather's shop. Uh, I know he he was, as I said, a carpenter, and I was there with him all day long, just you know, hitting on nails, make airplanes and stuff. And I love that so much. And I thought, you know, like I can't sit around for hours. I have to do something with my hands. And so it happens in, initially when you are interested in surgery. When I was a fourth year medical school student, uh, you ask for an internship in surgery and you just assign to a group. You don't get to pick where you go. And so I was assigned to work with Dr. Uh, with Professor Giovanni Zaninotto, uh, who was an esophageal expert. So that's how my esophageal love started. I always so, say it's my so first right, love. Right from your intern year, you you fell in love with the esophagus. Wow. That's it. That that's it. It was the esophagus. Amazing. Yeah. And initially, you know, every surgery, there were seven departments of general surgery in Italy, in my school, my university of Padova. And uh, every surgery was a pretty specialized. So there was one that did most with liver, one that did most with thyroid. And so we did mostly esophagus where I joined and you do your internship there. I did my thesis, medical school thesis on perisophageal hernias back then, 1996. And uh, uh, then I stayed in residency with that uh, department. And so all of my you know, general surgery residency was mostly really esophageal disease. And we didn't really rotate. Now they rotated also in Italy in different departments, which I think is great. Uh, I didn't have that much of an option. We did some, you know, we did a lot of general surgery, a bread and butter general surgery. 
Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we were very highly specialized in esophagus. And so I've learned a lot. And then, you know, how's, as it is, you know, the more you learn about something, the more you want to learn. So I never thought, oh, I hate the esophagus. You know, like that's all we, we spoke about. We breath esophagus, you know, we were talking about it all the time. And, and so I felt like, oh, I love it. So I, uh, what, what was the most common surgical techniques during that period of time when you, when you were uh, so, uh, rotating through? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time, right? Because 1996, it was like when laparoscopy was exploding. And so we did, uh, you know, we were doing the first Nissen's laparoscopic fund applications or Heller's. Zaninoff was mostly a benign esophageal uh, disease person. So I was much, uh, you know, into I uh, work into his lab and do a lot of manometry, his pH monitoring work and benign disease. Uh, the other portion though, we did a lot of esophagectomies uh, for cancer there and they were all done open then. So we did mostly Ivor Lewis. Open, uh, Ivor Lewis was the- Mostly Ivor Lewis, yeah. yeah, esophagectomy, but done by general surgeons. And so there was like, I remember this really big thoracotomy that we did. And you know what? Patient never got narcotics. So, so when I first came here in this country and we gave narcotics for a, for a mole removal, I was like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> Poor patients had like NSAIDs for like these gigantic thoracotomies, but they did good. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point now, I mean, technically, I mean, you're at the, one of the leading medical universities in all of Europe. You're with one of the most prestigious esophageal group. There must have been some party you could said that, well, I could just stay here and mm-hmm. have a guaranteed career. I mean, yeah. at what point did you decide you wanted oh. to come to the United States? Well, I never wanted to come to stay, right? But I realized pretty early in my training that I there were not a lot of women in surgery. Like I didn't realize that as again, serendipity, right? I didn't yeah. know that there were no women in surgery because in Italy you don't do a lot of hands-on, you know, in medical school. And so I didn't really think about it, honestly. But then when I became a resident, you know, there were this amazing female resident that I really looked up to and they were really good. And then they disappeared. And I was like, wow, what happened? You know, what what are they doing? Where are they going? And, you know, realizing that they get married, they have kids, and then they go and work in a ER somewhere. So I I felt like, oh, that's not, that's not great. And there was only one professor that was woman in our all- that in seven departments of surgery, there was only one woman, one uh, woman professor. Yeah. yeah. So then I thought, well, maybe I need to have something different than the others, you know, a step up. And a lot of my colleagues, a lot of uh, the attendings in my uh, department actually went to um, the United States uh, for training. So I thought, well, maybe I can go too to the United States for training. And then I can get, come back and have something more to offer to others. So I never came here to stay. In fact, when I came here for a fellowship, research fellowship, I did not do the USMLE. So I really couldn't have stayed even if I wanted to. Uh, but I uh, got in touch with Dr. Patty, Marco Patti, was a general surgeon, did a lot of benign disease at University of San Francisco, University of California, UCSF. And so he offered me this position and I was kind of all like, oh, very excited. Never been in, in United States before, never been in California. I was like, oh my God, it's gonna be so hot and beautiful. And I didn't know, you know, that I arrived, I landed July 19, 1999. And it was so cold in San Francisco. In San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and for, the, for the listeners, both uh, 
Danielle and I are smiling right now because both both of us uh, uh, are good friends with Marco. So it's it's uh, that's that's extraordinary that he provided you that that opportunity to do the research fellowship there at UCSF. Um, and so talk says so that you're doing the research fellowship. Did you have a time clock in your mind of you're only going to be here for a certain period of time and then go back, or you were just? Oh yeah, yeah, Def definitely. No, definitely. He gave me uh, a job for two years, uh, and it was so 1999 again was like incredible time, right? Uh, we were doing so much. I was doing research in his lab and dimensionometry and pH monitoring and so forth. Uh, barely spoke any English. Uh, but, uh, you know, learn as was, uh, you know, staying there it definitely helped a lot, right? But also helping with these laparoscopic courses. So every weekend we had a laparoscopic course with Larry Way and Juan Du uh, at UCSF. And it was just an amazing time to be there. You know, like we would do like courses on, you know, of course, lap colis, but also nephrectomies and hernias and nissens and all kind of, you know, uh, general surgery uh, laparoscopically and, and people would come from all over the United States to learn to these courses. And we were like tutoring and pretend like we knew it all, like talking with these people. And so I was exposed, you know, to all so many important figure, um, you know, in surgery in the United States without even really noticing or realizing uh, how amazing time that was. You know, we were training the Da Vinci, I guess that back in the days, it was, in, uh, it was a partnership with Stanford and the um, government, right? That they were doing uh, some research on robotics and we were training the robots then and who knew, right? What knew that it would explode like it did today, right? Exactly. It's like... Who knew? So it was a really incredible time that I was there. I was supposed to be there for two years. And then after a year and a half, I decided to go back a little earlier. It was it was difficult, you know, to be far away. And uh, I thought I learned what I needed to learn. And, um, and, and so I just, you know, didn't think that my future it was here and and also I, I i met this very nice guy uh, in san francisco i didn't want to get too too attached and so i thought oh maybe i should just go back and so i went back to padua um a year and a half later and i have to say it was very difficult to go back because here you know seeing the system here uh seeing the training here um, and, and really realizing how different it was in Italy. You know, in Italy, as a resident, if you're lucky, you are like third assist, uh, yeah. you know, holding, holding retractors. And, and that was it. And, you know, my boss used to say to me, this is a job that you have to steal with your eyes. And, and that was the motto. You know, he said one day to me, there is only one real surgeon for every generation. And, you know, and he didn't say it openly, but he meant to say, I get to decide who that surgeon is next after me. I mean, that's, that was the system there. So, and, and I, I can imagine that that probably, unfortunately, then developed a cutthroat culture, right? Because everybody's mm -hmm. vying to be that, the chosen one to be Absolutely. able to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, it was a um, system where the boss could ask you anything, you know, he could ask you to do his dry cleaning or whatever. And, and we were all like at his fingertips anytime, you know, if he decided to come in around 8 p.m. on a Monday, we would not leave the, nobody would leave the hospital until the big boss showed up for, for, for rounding. It was that culture, you know, it's a very pyramidal 
very tough culture where um, uh, you know the, the the there is no team really valued approach, right? So it's very different than here. So it was very hard for me to go back and. Uh, after seeing that there was a difference, you know, here people talked about Eminem, like I was like shocked about Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, it's uh, incredible. You openly talk about the mistake that you make. It's just, you know, initially it was like, it, it, you can't even talk about it, you know, like whose fault it is. <laughs> so it was incredibly eye-opening culture for me to come here and see actually the residents being taught in the operating room, being allowed to do things in the operating room and, uh, and, and actually not just, you know, coached, you know, coached through, through like hand, you know, taken hand by hand and taught them how to do this profession. It was very, very different uh, in Italy. So it was very traumatic going back. It was very depressing going back. So how long did it take you to make the decision then to come back to the United States? Uh, how long, how long well, did it take you? Well, that guy that I met in San Francisco actually came to Italy, uh, followed me in Italy, and we end up getting married in Italy and having kids. And uh, when I, um, I finished my residency, and then I, uh, in Italy, it's very common, you take a postdoc, and you basically still a resident, you do the same thing, but you have a postdoc title. And uh, at that point, my husband was laid off from his job in Europe. And so he thought, well, you know, should make decision, what are we gonna do? And I have to say, as a woman, I always felt a little bit uh, pulled in, in directions. Um, and I wonder, right? Maybe I thought, well, maybe the other resident that I saw disappear, maybe they were right. You know, maybe I should, I give it a try. I always felt very guilty being away late, and you know, my mom would take care of my daughter, and and uh, she would call me. It's like she's crying. She want you. When are you coming home? And it was just so hard, right, yeah. to do it all. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just be happy, just being a mom, and I don't maybe have to be a professional. So we moved together to the United States, actually in two thousand and three. I, uh, my, when my daughter and my, I was pregnant with my son and I uh, thought I'd give it a shot. I did not have USMLE done yet or anything like that. So I couldn't really go into medicine. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm going to stay home and take care of the kids and maybe do a part-time job or something. And, uh, I didn't, re didn't realize that I was so unhappy. <laughs> I was not meant as uh, but it's, you know, I always tell women today when they ask, you know, how do you know, and so forth, you know, sometime trying it out, it really gives me a different perspective. Because then I realized that I was a better mom, when I was actually working, than when I was home all day with my kids. So everybody's different, right? There are people that definitely are very happy and, and, and enjoying being a mom. And for me, it was the hardest job ever. It was very difficult. Uh, to, to be home with the kids uh, all the time and not having any other mental stimulations or you know uh, other interest. Uh, so for me, it was not fulfilling. And so I, when you're not a fulfilled person, it's also hard you know, to take care of your kids in a, in, a, in a good way. And so that was the time where I realized, oh my God, I don't think I'm happy with this job. And, 
everybody thought I was crazy, right? Because, uh, you know, I, it, it, it's hard to make the decision, but I thought, you know, I got some free time. Maybe I just study for this USMLE and see, you know, that <laughs> there are all these horror stories about for yeah. a medical graduate not passing USMLE for, for decades. And so I thought maybe I'm one of those and I don't ever pass. And then I kind of know that I, that's okay. You know, I feel that I tried. And so then I, I started studying for the SMLE and did the SMLE and passed. You didn't just and, pass. You did very well on these. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I passed. And uh, then, <laughs> then it was a hard time came. Now you have to decide what to do. Now you have now, to decide what to do. You've done well on the exams. Now you have to decide what to do. So, it was so tough. And, and of course, you're a fully trained surgeon from Italy and getting Such into a, surgery as a foreign graduate oh, was a very steep climb. So, oh my God. I was so many nights without sleeping and thinking, should I just go and do anesthesia? <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, thinking, I'm going to be behind a drape and say, no, 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 don't do that. You don't shouldn't do, do that. <laughs> <laughs> backseat driving from above the drapes that's funny right you can totally see me doing that everybody hating me <laughs> but so you had this uh soul searching conversation with yourself you realized that your passion was always in surgery that you had to give yeah. it a shot. yeah yeah and uh, it was actually my husband i have to say i have to give a credit to my husband he said i have a job you have a passion you cannot let that go and, and he was right. And, and he said, you know, we'll make it work. But by the time I started residency again, my son was almost one and my daughter was five. So it was, you know, a lot that he did. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have to give him credit. Talk, talk us about him, the process because I can imagine, I'm trying to envision um, program directors interviewing you for surgical residency because your pathway is completely unconventional. Uh, talk to us about that process. I mean, because you was, had to have an unbelievable belief in yourself. And then, of course, you had to break this glass ceiling of getting in. Uh, with I the know. You had. I know it's very difficult because like I had like more publication than a lot of the attendings and on the staff. But yet I'm a former medical graduate and uh, they, you know, the, the door to the interviews uh, are not always so easy to open because I, I can see, you know, people going through like a stack of application. And, and and they have to they have to have a system to say yes and no you know who goes to the interview so I applied to ninety five programs and I got five interviews and three of those interviews were for preliminary spots and yeah. so that was the reality I mean it was just really a competitive field very difficult to get in and again I think serendipity and I was very lucky and uh, I. Um, got um you know i went to dr patty's office one day and i said you know this is really not going looking good you know like i don't have any options and i have two kids i can you imagine what year preliminary in one place and then move everybody the family and everyone to another city and and so he said uh so i told him well what are we gonna do and it's like well let's see you know let me make one phone call he called he picks up the phone and he calls jeffrey peters in rochester new york right and what are the chances that Jeffrey Peters, who's the chair of surgery at University of Rochester, is actually sitting on his office at that moment, right? <laughs> I know, right? Isn't that crazy? I've, I've been so lucky, honestly, in my life. So he picks up the phone, 
And I said, oh, Daniela, oh yeah, I remember her presenting on chest pain and GERD at the SSAT. And I'm like, really, he remembers me presenting? I was like, crazy, right? That's amazing. <laughs> and so two days later, I got accepting for interview a letter in, for Rochester. And so I had, you know, like some options. And so I went to interview. Now, University of Rochester never took any foreign medical graduate before that year. Yeah. Never had, um, and uh, you know, Dr. Schwartz was. I remember meeting him. He's super nice, nice person. Always say "Buongiorno, Daniela." <laughs> <laughs> I can never forget him. Yeah, and uh, so I know. I Dr. Peter said, you know, we do have a second year um, uh, position. position, and I said, Dr. Peters, I'm like, you know, I'm committing to coming to this country and stay here for the long ride. And so I think that I should probably start from the beginning. And I was like, what else is thinking? What am I, why didn't I accept that? <laughs> and so I went to the match. I had no clue what I was doing, <laughs> but I was lucky enough that I matched categorical resident at the University of Rochester, which is a great, great program. Yeah. Now uh, tell, tell us about now you, I mean, I can, I can imagine this. I mean, you are a fully trained elite esophageal surgeon from Italy, starting all over again as a PGY1 intern uh, in a place that had never accepted a, a foreign medical graduate before as a categorical position. Walk us through that process. How was that? Because I, I, I can imagine that you probably had to bite your tongue several times. <laughs> you know what? It was, I the way I describe it, it was like a kid in a candy store. That's it. That's the way I described it. You know, for like, you imagine that for seven years now, I've been, you know, in, in Italy in this department of surgery where I would scrub in and watch and maybe do a little bit here and there when the attending maybe didn't show up or was late at night in the middle of the night, whatever, you know, and just, I know I could do it, right? But no, having the chance. And now actually somebody is teaching me how to do it. I was like the, the happiest, I was so happy I was there. I knew, like I would, I would go in, I would just finish all my work and then just go in the operating room and just stay in the operating room all day because I actually think there is a very strong, important value in watching and being part of the team, being present, being there. And my, I remember my, my co-residents, you know, would be in their intern room playing cards sometime, <clears throat> right? Because in the American mentality is like, unless you do the case, you don't even go to the operating room, right? But I, I didn't care. I would go in. It was like, you know, a pancreatectomy. I'm like, well, I definitely want to be in that room, right? Even though the senior resident is doing the operation, I'm there. And, you know, like maybe the attending will scrub out. We'll do it together. And it was amazing for me. I enjoyed every minute of it. I loved it so much. I thought it was amazing, fantastic. I, I was learning. I was doing what I wanted to be doing for so many years and actually I could do it that's a, the most fun part of all is like you know like you always question it I'm like I wonder if I can even do it right maybe I'm not even that good <laughs> but, but you, you you realize that you, you were meant to be there uh, and so obviously this passion for esophageal surgery maintained all the way throughout I mean that never changed even though you were being exposed to many elite surgeons from other specialties at the University of Rochester uh, and so that obviously influenced 
your decision then to pursue CT surgery training. Yes. Uh, yes. It's a, it, it's a first love, I guess. It never went away. And also I've always loved really big, complicated surgeries, but, and I also really like the, 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 the top process, right? And so esophageal surgery, maybe benign, easy operation, but very difficult thought process, right? Sometimes, and then difficult operation with cancer. Um, I've always loved minimally invasive surgery. And so I was considering you know, going into minimally invasive surgery because I really loved, you know, I was witnessed, I witnessed that the boom, right? The revolution of the revo minimally the invasive surgery. surgery. And yeah, absolutely. All that's taken so, off at this time, yeah. Right. So I was well, thinking, oh, what do I do? But then by the time I, it was time to, uh, uh, you know, interviewed and apply for, for programs, for fellowship, minimal invasive surgery was a down, um, I, I felt like it was a, just a technique. It was not a, a field anymore, right? Everybody was doing minimal invasive surgery, um, colorectal or, you know, epitability or whatever. Every, it, was, it was more of technique than anything else. And uh, Dr. Watson, Tom Watson, was uh, wow. one of my attendings in Rochester. And he said to me, it's all about the rest of the time. You know, how do you spend the rest of the time when you're not doing esophageal surgery? That's what you really have to think about. Yeah. And, and that was a very smart, you know, uh, question that he posed to me because I thought, you know, I could be doing on the rest of the time, a lot of bariatric surgery and laparoscopic abdominal surgery or I could be doing long resections. And, and honestly, I thought thoracic surgery was uh, just at the beginning, right? Of uh, yeah. exploding fetal back then. Uh, and uh, I love the anatomy. I always love anatomy as one of my favorite part about surgery. And I thought like lung resection is so anatomical. I really knew nothing about the lung or the heart at all. I never had a rotation in cardiac surgery. It was not mandatory then. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to go and do a rotation cardiac surgery. And if I can survive that, I think I could be a thoracic surgeon. That's how I That's decided you to go into thoracic, thoracic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's such a fascinating origin story. I mean, to get you to this point. And of course, now, I mean, you are one of the world's experts in esophageal surgery at one of the world's leading institutions at the Sloan, at Sloan Kettering at the time of this recording. Um, tell us about the perspective. I mean, do you ever pause and think, wow, what, what a fascinating journey it's been to get to this point? Or, or are you still like a kid in a candy store where you're just like, everything just excites you and it just, I mean, I know you threw the word luck around it. I, 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 I push back a little bit because I always <laughs> That you know, uh, people who are lucky are those who are unbelievably well prepared to take uh, take advantage of the opportunity that's presented to themselves. But talk to us about how how you go through your day now. I mean, like I said, you're one of the world's elite wow. esophageal surgeons. Uh, how do you go through this? I mean, oh, you're too nice. Like? You're too nice. You're too nice. I I, I think so. <laughs> Sometimes I think back and I'm like, wow, uh, you know, how do I how do I come here? I think you know, like. Uh, what did I do different than others? I think that I for sure worked really hard. I think yeah. if I had to say what made this possible, I never, I love to work hard. You know, I, I never um, am shy from throwing myself 100% in what I do. I really, if I'm passionate about something, I just don't hold back at all. I just go for it. 
uh, with everything that I have. And so I think that's one of the things that helped me for sure. But I also was in the right place at the right time in many circumstances that have allowed me to be where I am. Of course, I met so many people that that's again, the community, right? Yeah. The community in thoracic surgery was incredible for me. And a lot of people that had believed that has believed in me, that have given me opportunity beyond what I ever, ever expected to have. And, and without them, without that community, I wouldn't have been here today. But, uh, but so I also I'm, want to bring back a theme that you brought about. Uh, and I thought that's a very fascinating comment that you said that being a thoracic surgeon has actually made you a better mom and a better wife and a better human being. Um, yes. that, uh, and, and God bless your husband. That's a great way of saying that, you know, th this is a passion of yours. I mean, they, being a thoracic surgeon has been a passion of yours, uh, be, specifically being an esophageal surgeon is being, uh, uh, talk to us about that. I mean, uh, you know, we hear a lot of words about work-life balance, work-life integration, all these different things, yeah. but you're, you're saying that this, uh, all of these different components make you the wonderful human being you are, uh, correct? Well, I don't know if I'm wonderful, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, yes, I think that, I know, first of all, uh, I don't think there is, there is any balance. I mean, I think that we are lying to ourselves when we talk about balance. I think, I think there are parts of life, there are pieces, it's like a, a puzzle, right? And there are all different pieces, pieces that go together to create a beautiful picture, and, uh, and, and because I am a more a fulfilled person, being a surgeon and uh, happy at what I do, then I can relate to my kids in a way that is more uh, present and, and it's more fulfilling for them. Our relationship, I think, is much better because of that. And the same thing with my husband. So, sorry, my dog is barking. No, no, it's, all it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but all these different back. parts are bring about parts of you. I mean, they're all parts of your soul, essentially, all these yes. different things that you're doing. Yes. And the same, I think I'm a better doctor because like when I relate with my patients, right, I can relate with them from a human uh, perspective that I have, you know, in a difference. So if the patients have kids or with the patient have elderly parents, you know, like who we are as persons, you know, come from all of these little, these multiple aspects of our lives. And I think that uh, we are, we are because we have all of those pieces and we're fulfilled of what we do. Right. And so I think, you know, like if you expect to, you know, being able to do it all, then you're going to be disappointed, right? There are moments in which you're going to be really, really highly focused in your career. And there are things in your job that really takes a big, gigantic effort, right? And, and a lot of your attention. And there are other times where the family comes first and it's more important and you dedicate your time to your family. Um, and, or same thing with your, with your parents and other parts of life, you know, some hobbies that you might have and so forth. There are all these little pieces of your life that makes you a unique person who you are and the better doctors and, and, and a better spouse and a better mom. How, how how old were your kids when they realized their mom is a famous surgeon? Um, I don't think they know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe that. I'm gonna ask them the next time I see them. <laughs> I don't know that. No, <laughs> but they call me. My son just called me today. He's got COVID, so they call me every time they have health issues. <laughs> they have health issues. He's in college now. Well, and hopefully, like hopefully he feels better. I'm so sorry about that. But, uh, well. 
for our listeners, at the time of this recording, uh, Dr. Molina is currently the vice president of the Women in Thoracic Surgeons. And then in 2023, she's, she's also the president-elect. And so she will become the president of the Women in Thoracic Surgery. Uh, what If somebody were to ask you uh, what your leadership style is, how would you, how would you answer that? Hmm, that's a very good question for any interviewer. <laughs> uh, well, I think I like to, I like to think that I have an inspirational type of leader. I really like to motivate people, inspire people. I like to see people around me that are excited, uh, that are happy, that wanted to to do things. And I, to me, is all about who is around me and the team and the community. Um, I, I could not ever be alone doing something. And that's why I think WTS, Women in Thoracic Surgery, has been just an, a great community for me I, I, that, that really has helped me feeling like I belong to this profession in a way that I could not have otherwise, right? You wanna, you wanted to feel like you're part of it, that you belong, that you are who you are. And with my friend, you know, and women in thoracic surgery, um, I feel like there is no judgment. You can be yourself. You can you can be vulnerable, and you're accepted for who you are. And, and uh, it's great to have that. Um, yeah, and and I guess this brings back the theme that you brought up uh, several times during this interview is that community. This is a tremendous community of inspirational leaders uh, and you're inspiring them but you're probably being inspired by many of them as well correct oh absolutely absolutely from the very beginning you know like again i joined a field that it was a minority there were not a lot of women i think when i joined the residency the fellowship we were like three to five percent now we're more than that uh, but you know again there are few women few people that look like me right at that time and um um, also, one of my first exposure to women in surgery, I think when I was a resident in Rochester, uh, was through a colleague who said, you know, as a woman, you just need to be stronger. You need to be tougher. Uh, you, you just need to never show that you're tired to the men. And, and so that kind of got trauma. I got traumatized by that first <laughs> interaction. And, uh, and, and then I met, you know, women in thoracic surgery and, and a lot of amazing, you know, I can mention so many past president of our community, uh, but also some of the younger women uh, for which I think the younger women even more, right, pushes us beyond uh, our um, our limitation in a way, right? And, and really gave us a different perspective of how you can be a woman with all of your needs as a woman and all of your differences as a woman and still be a thoracic surgeon. And I think that's what we need to do more and more in the future, right? Not just be all the same and all work in the same way as in the past, but just really be flexible, be open to what needs are that might be different, you know, uh, for women, uh, for other, you know, diversity groups that might not be like what the idea of thoracic surgeon that we had, you know, in our mind in the past. Um, so I have a lot of hope and I even a lot of optimism for the younger generation. I know we, 
the poor young kids, we always beat on them and say, oh, they don't want to work. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's funny you say that because if we trace back in the history of time, uh, every older generation has criticized the generation coming behind them. And so it's, you know, right. it's like when you go back and the baby boomers were criticized and then generation yes. X was criticized and then the millennials yes. and now Gen, and yes. Gen Z and everybody. And, and yeah. it's fascinating. Everybody criticizes the generation coming behind them. <laughs> right. But I have a tremendous hope and, and really a, a lot of optimism for this generation of young kids today. They're so like open-minded, right? They're so accepting of every uh, human being and their diversity. Uh, they are so used to this, right? Uh, aspect of being inclusive and being welcoming. Uh, they are very open-minded. They have different goals than we might have had in the past. Um, and I, I think that the future in surgery is brighter because of this young generation of kids that I think will change our field to a field that is different and, and more inclusive, more diverse, and also a little bit more flexible than we have been in the past. Yeah, no, amen to all of that. Well, <laughs> in the final moments that we have, um, I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on the future of uh, esophageal surgery specifically. I mean, I think that there's, um, I, I, I was struck by what you had said that, you know, when laparoscopic surgery exploded, you realized that yes, but the laparoscopic surgery is just a technique. That's not the field. I mean, the field really is for you specifically is, you know, the in-depth content expertise in the world of the esophagus, it's physiology and when things go wrong and how to fix it and when it's cancer, all, all those different things in the world. Where do you think the field of the esophageal surgery is going uh, in, in, in the near future? Well, I think that there is so much work still that we need to do in esophageal surgery. If you think about even in the United States, you know, because esophageal cancer is such a rare disease, um, uh, we have a lot of centers that do just few operations here there. I, I don't think we're doing a good job with esophageal cancer patient in general. Majority of patients in the United States get treated actually with definitive chemo radiation because they don't have surgeons that can do the operation. So I think that really we don't have standards of what an esophageal surgery operation should be or should look like, right? And what are some of the acceptable risks and outcomes of the surgical procedure? Uh, we don't have any of that in esophageal surgery. It's mostly, you know, uh, feel that because it's so rare, we have kind of left behind a little bit. So there's a lot of work that we need to do in terms of standardized, in terms of being, you know, um, more um, you know, critical with the outcomes that we have with this operation. And uh, even in, in, in with benign disease, I think that there is... Uh, little bit of uh, you know the excitement that I witnessed back in 1990s right with uh, laparoscopic surgery I feel like the pendulum has swung back a little bit because you know it's such a it was such an easy operation that we overdid it and yeah. a lot of patients did not have good results from it because we just thought that we could do it without really understanding the physiology and the um, you know, the indication of the operation. So I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done there too, because now I feel like it's going the opposite direction where we'd never offer it to anybody anymore. Yeah. And so, and so I, I think that working together, I think is the world of a teams, the future, the disease should be really looked at a team approach of experts. Yeah. And so and, we really and, uh, need to. 
and probably along with that, not only the team of experts, because I've, I've heard you speak about this, it's the longitudinal care of that patient. I mean, it's not just doing an operation and then letting them, you know, people need to be tracking how they're doing, what the functional outcomes are, what the quality of life is for a long period of time for this patient population. Absolutely, absolutely. We really have to do a better job, you know, in, in that aspect to look at outcomes of what we do. And sometime when you have a team approach where you can offer everything to the patient, it's a little easy to make the decision about what's right. And when you can just offer one thing, right? They go to the surgeon, they got an operation, they go to the GI, they got PPI or they got a ESD or, and then we stay in our own silos. So it's time to get the disease brought in a team perspective of expert. And the same thing, you know, with cancer, things will change. You know, now we have like drugs that are so powerful that we might not even need surgery for some group of patients, right? And, and as surgeons, we need to be honest to say, that's right, you know, that patient can be treated just with medication. And so sometime to do the right thing, what is right for the patient, you know, we need to switch a little bit, make that uh, shift in perspective to say, I know what's right for the patient uh, and change and say, patients know what's right for them, right? And we work for them. We are, uh, you know, their partners in, in care to reach and fulfill what their goals are for their lives. And we cannot do that alone. We do that with a team of experts. And, and so that we look at the patient in entirety, not just as a disease or as, as a problem, right? And, and we look at 360, the entirety of the patient. And for that perspective, we can decide together what's the best option for that patient long-term. And then we follow it in the long-term um, because what's right today might not be the same right in five years and seven years. So we have to become flexible a little bit more so that we can change the plan when the plan doesn't work and just be partner you know, for patients in their, in their, um, in their life and in their uh, treatment path. Well, uh, Dr. Molina, I mean, you and I, uh, we've known each other for many years. And we could probably keep talking, uh, but uh, uh, from the bottom of my heart, on behalf of all our incredible listeners to this podcast, thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for sharing your journey. Uh, thank you for bringing a smile to our face. I mean, I, I love the fact that I, I didn't expect to hear about the uh, auditioning and being on uh, <laughs> national TV in Italy. That, that's a new one. I, that was a surprise to me. But uh, thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for joining us on today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life. Oh, Tom, it was a very great pleasure. I was very nervous about this interview. And uh, I, I hope that I might have helped, you know, some uh, people out there. Uh, that uh, might have struggles or trajectory that is not the standard trajectory to to keep on going, you know, and to keep on staying motivated because life has so much surprises for us uh, that uh, are amazing. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> this has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.